Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of August 26th, technically speaking. I'm your host Dan Creter, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss why deteriorating technicals could present spread market participants with a buying opportunity in September and October. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Dan, in our last podcast a week ago, I think we talked a bit about how credit spreads have sort of plateaued in recent weeks and actually potentially moved a little bit wider. And over the course of the past week, I don't think that that narrative has changed much. Yeah, we're still really in that range that we've been talking about for the past six weeks now. And last week, for the first time in what feels like a while, spreads actually showed some modest signs of weakness, widening out several basis points over the week. That was the first time that spreads had really widened in any prolonged fashion since June. And we've been saying for much of the summer that we expected some amount of credit spread weakness to arise in August. Obviously, we didn't get the type of widening that we expected. But we have seen this narrowing in spreads really take a breather given where current levels are. We're just about 30 basis points from pre-pandemic levels. Now I think the bar for further narrowing is higher and we aren't going to see these pre-pandemic levels be breached likely until there is some more clarity on both the macro environment and the path of the virus. Yeah, I think there's an argument to be made that reduced liquidity in the summer months might be contributing to some of the malaise in credit spreads recently. But from a high level, I think you're right. I think that it's just an important psychological barrier looking at credit spreads just above pre-pandemic levels and expecting to see significant narrowing given all the uncertainty. And that's especially true heading into the summer months where we have, you know, there's been this sort of overriding assumption that in the winter months, we're at higher risk of virus spreads. Our listeners will know that we agree with that point of view. But then the potential for more lockdowns, which is now enhanced after Joe Biden's comments at the Democratic National Convention last week, seeming to favor combating any additional virus spread with lockdowns, the election itself. And now the market taking a closer look at the path of employment, which is sort of plateaued here. And you know, we still think that there's a good amount of American jobs that are sort of at risk of being lost if this momentum that we've built in the summer month has failed to be followed through upon when winter months arrive and people have to go back inside. Some of those jobs that have held on or even been added may go back the other way again. So there's just a lot of uncertainty in the fall months. And we've been pretty consistent this whole time saying that spreads would not be able to narrow to pre-pandemic levels or narrower than that until some of that uncertainty faded and Looking out over the next two months, it's hard to expect that uncertainty to fade. If anything, I think we could describe the market as being in this sort of wait-and-see mode at best. Yeah, and I think it's safe to assume that in our base case, this wait-and-see mode, as you describe it, is likely to persist probably through November once we get past the presidential election, once we see what virus infection rates turn out to be as colder weather arrives. And given this heightened uncertainty and directionless trading environment, it's possible that technicals take on a more important role in terms of determining a near-term 
path of credit spreads. It's an important point because, at least from a historical perspective, technicals are about to turn less supportive. I mean, if you just look at average spread moves by month over the last 15 years, and this applies to the entire credit spectrum, it's not just one or the other, they tend to move together. But if you look at spread moves by month, June, July, August tend to be relatively supported. You don't see a lot of variation in those months. And that's not too surprising considering usually lower trading volumes amid summer months. But then if you look at September and October, those two months are actually two of the three worst performing months on average since 1995 for credit spreads. And, you know, we all know that typically issuance is very heavy then, but what we can also observe is that we head towards the end of the year. Sometimes investors become a little more risk averse, a little less likely to take on risk as they look to protect P&L ahead of the end of the year and closing of the books. And, Looking at it from a 2020 perspective, those two factors are likely to be at least as pronounced as in years past and potentially even more pronounced. I mean, certainly from a supply perspective, it's already been a record year this year. And after a light July, there was some hope that issuance might start to slow down, that maybe these entities had raised enough cash to sort of weather the storm. But now, but now another record month, this being the highest August issuance in history, that seems to argue against that potential assumption. And Given the magnitude of gains in investor portfolios after the significant spread narrowing we've seen so far this year, there might be even more incentive to sort of just protect that P&L and maintain it as you head into the end of the year. But let's start, I guess, by talking about the issuance side of things. And Dan, you took a look at Q2 corporate financials now that they've reported for most or all corporations. And what did that analysis tell you about what to expect for issuance going ahead? Yeah, so we think issuance is going to remain well above trend through the end of the year. Just to bring it back, you talked about August issuance being the heaviest August on record. I think even more striking is that this August is the 15th heaviest month on record period. And when you consider that August is usually one of the two or three slowest months in terms of issuance, that to me is very telling about just how heavy issuance has been and will likely continue to be into year end. So looking at Q2 financials, we're most interested in looking at cash metrics, namely the quick ratio and the current ratio, because those had already shown signs of decline well before the pandemic hit. And we actually had been talking at the end of 2019 about our expectation for corporate weakness based in part on those weaker metrics. And we found that this heavy issuance we've seen in the first half has largely repaired these damaged cash ratios, but they're still nowhere near where we think corporates want them to be. So if you look at the end of the last two business cycles in 2001 and 2008, these cash ratios were much higher than they are right now in terms of the quick ratio and the current ratio. And we think that given the continued uncertain macro landscape, coupled with the extremely advantageous funding costs, there's no reason for these corporations to not continue to issue more and more cash to get their cash ratios back towards levels where they're more comfortable. I agree with your takeaway that it it certainly seems like issuance is going to remain heavy going forward. But I think there's another factor important to take away from that Q2 analysis, and that's just this stockpiling of cash. It implies to me, at least, that the heads of corporate America, the people that see earnings data in real time, not with a month's or quarter's worth of lag, they remain very, very uncertain. And that uncertainty tells me that some of the jobs that have been saved or even added back as economies have reopened, those jobs remain in the balance if we see another second wave and or lockdowns are implemented once again. I mean, I do think that after a summer's worth of increased activity of being outside, that people will tolerate another round of lockdown, especially given this sort of sentiment that 
a vaccine is on the horizon, we may only need to do this one more time as sort of a protect the people at risk. I could be wrong, but it does seem like there would be willingness from the public to tolerate another round of lockdown. And without fiscal stimulus, those jobs could be at serious risk. So your analysis looks at not just a technical reason to maybe be a little wary of spreads in September and October, but also a more fundamental reason. Now, to try to maybe quantify it, Dan, do you have any numerical estimates for what issuance may look like in September or Q3 or the rest of the year? Yeah. So obviously, as we've both just alluded to, the issuance projection is going to be highly dependent on the path of economic lockdowns, on interest rates, and a variety of other economic factors. But just to put some context around it, over the past four years, issuance in the last four months of the year, so September through December, has ranged from 330 billion to 400 billion. And I think it's realistic to expect that we could see issuance as high as, say, 450 to 500 billion into the end of this year. As, like you said, there's potential for re implementation of economic lockdowns. And absent fiscal stimulus, these companies are going to have more and more incentive to continue to raise cash and shore up balance sheets. So we're looking at about 450 to 500 billion in our base case for issuance into year end. And then when you combine that with the outlook in the SSA agency market, which while much smaller than corporate, still adds a meaningful amount of supply that investors must digest. And looking at GSEs alone, agency issuance has already been the heaviest since 2016 and may well exceed 2016 when all the dust settles. And The driving factor behind why agency issuance is so high is well known at this point. It's primarily forbearance programs as bondholders continue to get paid, but those loans and forbearance are no longer sending P&I payments. It's worth noting now, of course, that mortgage services were required to forward those P&I payments for a period of four months. And once those four months passes, the agencies have to make up those cash payments themselves. Well, if the majority of loans went into forbearance in March or April, That gives us a July or August time period for when four months has passed and mortgage servicers stop sending those cash payments. So as we go forward, we should see cash needs at the GSCs continue to remain very heavy. And the forwarding of P&I payments is just one reason. Fannie Mae and its second quarter financials listed a couple of reasons, including perhaps the most important one being funding an elevated amount of loan purchases out of MBS trust once forbearance period ends. So they're expecting higher delinquencies to come on after forbearance that some of these borrowers in forbearance now, once forbearance ends, they're not going to be able to pay their mortgage and they're going to go delinquent. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac then buy those loans out of their trusts. And obviously with those being elevated, they have to fund those purchases. Another reason is expectation for heavy conduit activity. Just with a heavy degree of refis, given how low rates are, there's a lot of activity going on that GSEs have to have cash for on hand, as well as the last factor being the implementation of new liquidity requirements by FHFA effective September 1st that are strengthening up GSE liquidity portfolios. So we have four real big reasons for why the GSEs need a lot of cash. And I'd note here that the GSEs also implemented a 50 basis point adverse market fee on all refis going forward that was supposed to help to offset some of the cash impact now that mortgage services aren't going to be sending P&I payments anymore. But that adverse market fee just got delayed from September to December. So that cash won't be coming in the door until December. All signs just point to the agency is going to continue to need very heavy issuance. And Fannie Mae issued $7 billion in benchmarks in July, $9 billion in August. A callable and floating rate issuance has increased rapidly for both of them. So we're going to have very heavy GSE issuance probably for the remainder of the year, at least. And looking at SSAs, SSA borrowing programs haven't changed very significantly because of COVID. That was our expectation from the very beginning. But 
we are expecting to see at least a small uptick compared to last year. And then as we look to September and October, SSA issuing programs are very seasonal. Almost every year, the percentages are within just a few percent in terms of total supply by month. And looking at September and October combined are almost 20% of annual supply, which means that using our current estimates for USD supply this year, SSA supply in those two months could approach 50 billion. So in addition to all the corporate supply you've talked about, Dan, we're looking at SSA agency issuance to add on another 75 billion potentially that the market has to digest. Now the question becomes, how able is the market to digest this heavy supply we're forecasting? Dan, how have corporate deals performed during this heavy supply period of August? And what does that tell you about what to expect for September supply and going forward? So New deals in August have done extremely well. New issue concessions have been very low, if anything at all. But one thing I'll point out about August issuance that I think is worth mentioning is that the quality of borrower coming to market in August has been unlike anything in the last three years. We've had over a quarter of the issuance in the investment-grade corporate market be issued by AAA or AA issuers. That's something we haven't seen since January of 2017, and that constitutes $36 billion just in August alone from double or AAAs. So while, yes, new issue performance has been exceptionally strong, I think it's worth highlighting that when you have it very, very high quality issuer that doesn't come to market very often, there's always going to be demand, especially in a time like this for some high quality paper like that. Now, that said, we haven't seen primary market weakness on a sustained basis since March. And there's not much reason to expect that that's going to happen immediately once supply picks up again in September. But I do think that given the directionless trading that we are forecasting for the next couple of months, it certainly is possible that the market eventually buckles under this wave of supply and new issue concessions start to reemerge. And just generally, new issues are less well-received and could drag spreads wider in the secondary market. Yeah. And potentially adding to the performance of corporate deals recently is we should note that July was relatively light and fell short of expectations. So you had maybe a little of pent-up demand from July coming through. We'll see how well September supply is digested. Because I'll note that in the SSA agency market, we started to see a little fatigue. Just in the last two weeks, two of the four heaviest weeks since early May were the last two calendar weeks. And we started to see some of those deal sizes start to shrink. We started to see less and less tightening from initial pricing thoughts. And then when you combine that with your interesting point about how it's been a lot of highly rated corporate borrowers, it seems like maybe that very highly rated segment of the market is starting to experience a little bit of fatigue. So just something worth noting as we head into the heavy issuance period in the fall that we think could weigh on spreads and ultimately drag them a little bit wider while the market waits to see how these risk factors play out in September and October. And of course, any negative surprises in virus transmission, lockdowns, presidential election, et cetera, would only add to the potential widening. So now here we'll stress that any widening we do get in September and October should be viewed as an important buying opportunity. We continue to believe that spreads are going to make historical lows in the current cycle, likely within the next 12 to 18 months, for reasons we talked about in our podcast last week. If in case you missed it, please tune into that one. But just the near term outlook, a little less rosy. So hopefully we get a little bit of spread widening that we can take advantage of as we set longs heading into the end of 2020 and looking forward to a hopefully much better 2021. And so, Dan, before we wrap up here for this week's episode, I want to just spend a minute talking about swapsters. We haven't talked about them at all recently. And I think part of the reason is because there really hasn't been much to talk about. 
Yes, swap spreads remain in this tight three to four basis point range that they've been trading in for the past three months now. Even though we've seen some somewhat volatile settings in LIBOR, swap spreads generally are not responsive to those moves. We saw a little bit of a break in that trend on Monday when we walked into LIBOR setting a basis point and a half lower, bringing swap spreads narrower with it. But generally, swap spreads are still in the middle of this range. And do you see any reason for that to break? No, I really don't. With the effect of lower bound and liquidity awash in the financial system, it's hard to see how this range in swap spreads breaks. I mean, I agree with you. We had a little bit of a move on Monday, but that really just brought us back to the middle of the range. And then when LIBOR printed 1.7 basis points higher the very next day, we didn't see spreads react. We're just not seeing spreads react to this volatile daily LIBOR printing. The volatility in LIBOR, a bit of a head scratcher for us. It doesn't seem to make much sense. Clearly, it seems to be related to something with the level three submissions. Now that funding transactions are so low, submitter banks are relying on level three transactions to a greater extent than even recent history. And we're just getting some quirky numbers coming out of the models. It might be FX driven. That seems to be our biggest suspicion now, but there's really not much behind that. And ultimately, it doesn't really matter. We're not seeing sponsors react much to these daily fluctuations in LIBOR because the market looks through them and... From a longer-term perspective, there's just not really any expectation to think LIBOR or repo is going to move significantly from here for the foreseeable future. So I think the range is in. I think this range is going to hold. Maybe we'll get some volatility around year-end, just given the balance sheet mechanics at the end of the year. Even that I'm not sure of, but maybe we'll get something around then. But other than that, it's hard to see things moving. In such an environment, we prefer to be long, just because if the range is broken, it would likely be in a deterioration of the macro picture, which would be a swap spread widener. But it's a low conviction view on our part. And we recognize that given how heavy supply is that we just spend an entire podcast talking about, which needs to be swapped and is a swap spread narrower It doesn't feel great, but issuance has been very, very heavy for four months and spreads continue just kind of trade in this range. I mean, I guess the best way to sum it up would be to say, I don't see any reason to change whatever position you're in now. Yeah, I agree. Given all the liquidity in the system from the Fed and the notion that it's not going anywhere anytime soon, it's hard to see LIBOR moving much. It's hard to see repo moving much. And I think I would lean neutral on swap spreads in the two to five year segment of the curve. Just a quick programming note. We won't have an episode next week. We have a cross-sector macro monthly podcast coming out. And Dan Belton is fortunately for him on vacation. So you enjoy that vacation, Dan. We're all very jealous. And we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. 
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.